Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. Today I'm here with Ruben Saidi. He's a 26 year old entrepreneur who quit his job to chase his dream of having a cannabis business with zero guidance. Ruben fought his way to owning two businesses and now wants to help others realize it's possible for them to do the same, regardless of their background or situation. His co founder and co CEO, Jackson Mejia, is also here, who was a corporate attorney for two of the largest law firms in the world. I bet you guys make a solid team, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting dynamic, that's for sure. <laughs> thanks for being here today. Yeah, oh, thanks thank for having us. us. Yeah, and thank you, Lee, for that beautiful introduction. Wow, I, I didn't even send you that. That was uh, <laughs> I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Of course. So tell us your backgrounds. How did you both decide you wanted to get into the cannabis industry? Yeah, so for me, I've known since a very young age, actually, since I was in elementary school, I remember I was in like third or fourth grade, I was bored in my health class, and I was just on the ground sitting through, like flipping through the textbook we had at the time. And I get through the to the back end of it. And all of a sudden, I see a pot leaf with a big red circle around it saying, don't do this or whatever. And they had like a little blurb of um, say no to drugs and blah, blah, blah. And ever since that day, that image just got ingrained into my head. And, and I knew at the time I was like, this doesn't seem right to me. Like something about this being a no-no just doesn't it, I, I knew it wasn't right at the time. So um, like, I, I didn't know how to act on that, obviously. So I, I just kind of sat with it. Then um, the first day I got a, a chance to smoke, I was like 13 years old. I, I fucking jumped on the opportunity. <laughs> I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I, like, you, you're, you're asking me to finally get to do what I've been dreaming of doing since elementary school. So I was like, fuck yeah, let's go. Um, so yeah, cannabis has played a really important role in my life. Um, since, since then, uh, it's shaped a lot of my decisions. I've literally been what most people consider a pothead or stoner or whatever since uh, since that age. Um, uh, there's Yeah, so uh, I, I've had this passion for cannabis. And then um, that combined with uh, an yearning that I, that I also had to get into business, I just didn't really know how to, how to go about it. Um, so then when this whole social equity program in Massachusetts came out and they started talking about giving entrepreneurs guidance and resources to, to get into the industry. And, you know, if you're disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs, you should have level level footing to get in the, in the space and you should have the same ability to do it as a big corporation. So all this language really started speaking out to me, um, especially because I had a criminal, I have a criminal record because of cannabis. So mm -hmm. I qualified for the program. Um, and and uh, yeah, it seemed interesting to me. I figured why not throw my name in the hat and, and see what happened. So I applied for the program, got in and uh, yeah, like that's really what, uh, uh, I mean, even then, I didn't know what I was doing, but I kind of started interacting with people and, and networking and, and building a, uh, an, an idea of, of what it takes to start one of these businesses. And given the place I was in and the passions that I had, I just figured, why not, you know, kind of just run with this idea and, and try to start something here. Um, and, and, and it was during that path that, uh, that Jackson and I kind of connected and uh, because for work at the time, I was a uh, paralegal and uh, I, I was doing a lot of like pro bono work for my law firm and, and just, you know, helping out where I could. And part of that was that we worked with a 
uh, like a nonprofit called Kids in Need of Defense. And they focused on uh, like giving children from Latin America or Central America, like uh, helping them, helping them have like a, get get like a, a chance at the world here in, in, in the United States, because most of these kids are coming without any family, without any resources. So they, they literally have no idea what what life is like here and, and they're expected to, to build a life. So um, at the time, Jackson and I were or I was mentoring or like. I signed up to to mentor um, some of these kids, and it was at this event where um, we were being paired with our mentees that um, I took the chance to start doing some networking because it was right around when uh, I started running with the whole cannabis idea. Um, so I started just pitching my idea to different people there, and Jackson and I just uh, happened to connect, and and uh, we kind of started. Uh, yeah, we we clicked since day one. Um, yeah, so like that's how we connected. Jack, do you want to talk a bit about? What got you to that point? Yeah, I mean, so it's funny because I, I, you know, like like your mom, Leah, my mom is <coughs> like totally against cannabis, um, you know, really pushing, you know, against it as, you know, gateway drug, all, all that other stuff. Um, and I, I graduated, really mine starts kind of back in 2012 when I graduated from UMass Amherst. Um, I graduated from the Commonwealth College, I love UMass. <laughs> Uh, from the Commonwealth College, you know, I was, you know, I three nine GPA, something crazy. I'd really, I mean, I love school, did really well in school. Um, when I graduated, I couldn't find a job. I had student loans. Um, you know, now I have to rent an apartment, and you know, things were just like the world was finally, you know, bearing down on me. And you know, I I applied to a bunch of places that I thought I'd be well equipped for, and it just didn't work out. Um, so I honestly, I, I took that as an opportunity, uh, not an opportunity, honestly, it was, it was more of just by necessity, right? It was, it was a, a necessity thing. Um, I started selling weed on the side uh, when I graduated. And essentially that, uh, I did it for, for a few years and slowly kind of build my way up to doing more wholesaling. Um, I was still not a user at that time. Um, and you know I was able to kind of take some of the profits from there. And, you know, I was really worried about all this work I had done in school and all be falling apart because of, you know, the, the, the stigma and also the, the illegality of cannabis at the time. Uh, so I, I ended up opening up a bar in Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, which, you know, I think I was 26 at the time, uh, ran that for a while. And, and I kind of knew that I wanted to do something else. But th that was really kind of my introduction to like business and really loving, you know, working with people. Um, one of the things I've, I've been working full time since I was 14. So, and I've like had multiple jobs every year. I think I ended up counting like 38 jobs that I've had uh, up to this point right right now. Um, so a lot of it too was working the regular people, being a manager and kind of implementing stuff that I've seen before or like just different ways of doing things. Um, but just fast forward, you know, I ran the bar and I thought, you know, like I, I want to go to law school. I was a political science major uh, and economics major and I just thought, let me let me try something else. Uh, so I ended up selling that bar and ended up going to law school. Um, you know, did the whole thing, worked in New York for a while, New York City for a while. Then I ended up working in Boston. And it kind of just started creeping into me that I really missed kind of the day-to-day, -day, you know, making decisions for the business, really working with employees, um, not just as like your employees, but like as partners in this business. I think I had a, like 12 people at the height at the bar and everybody kind of, you know, I, 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 my retention rate was great. Uh, people stayed there and, and I just really enjoyed that. So like, I, I just had a feeling that I wanted to be, not only own a business again, 
um, and be a business uh, manager, but I also want to kind of work back with the community. I, you know, being kind of at the law firm, I felt this kind of disconnect between um, me wanting to also give back and, and work with the community I grew up grew up with, um, and just kind of being, you know, living in Boston or, or New York City, um, there's this kind of huge disconnect. So I started doing a lot of the pro bono work as an attorney um, with KIND, which is uh, the organization Ruben mentioned earlier. And, you know, I had previously helped a few kids get there. Um, a lot of them are undocumented. So I helped a few pro bono get their, their residency. Um, so when they asked me if I wanted to mentor kids in the city, uh, I was like, yeah, let me do this. And, and that's that's where I met Ruben. And Ruben was just so passionate about, you know, cannabis, um, his experience for cannabis and what he was doing. Um, that I was like, it just started kind of, you know, moving kind of those gears in my head. And I was like, this sounds like an amazing opportunity, not only to, to you know, go back, go back to something that I, I enjoyed. I did enjoy the cannabis stuff, working in cannabis. And by this point, um, I had started smoking, um, you know, and, and mainly I first started for like sleep purposes. It really helped me with sleep. Um, and then I found that like when I smoke, I, I just think about things differently. Um, mm -hmm. And for me, just like a very deep level. So I just developed this, this kind of love for cannabis. And I thought this was like a perfect chance to kind of marry the two. Um, and, and it did take us a little while to reconnect, but I, I just, I knew in the back of my head that like one Ruben is, as you can probably already tell, just like, like amazing. Right. And he, he had the way into kind of this industry. And I thought that like, this is a way to potentially get back into this industry that I enjoyed to get back into kind of that leadership role within a company, um, but also connect with the communities as well. Right. Like start bringing back good paying jobs. The cannabis industry pays pretty well uh, mm -hmm. compared to other industries. Um, so I just thought this is like Ruben would give me the opportunity, you know, if he allowed me to kind of join him to to really kind of pursue that passion that he also has as well. And luckily, like, you know, we're here now. So like, you know, uh, he, he did allow me to join him on this. Um, but that's really how I got into this. This basically, you know, Ruben pitching this amazing idea, his amazing vision um, and then marrying it to kind of my also kind of dissatisfaction with what I was doing. Um, and my passion too, for, for what Ruben was doing. So that's how we got here. I think it's so cool how both of you had your own like crazy journeys and how the path just aligned. So you guys could meet up like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, but it, it really like, I can't give enough credit to like Ruben and kind of his foresight uh, in like, he's been, he was in the industry a little before that, you know, and really just, you know, looking at the industry, seeing where it made sense and, and holding those chips close to him until he was ready to make a move. Um, and then that's stuff that I think will, will, will resonate through the in interview is, is, you know, the team, building a team. And then also Ruben's like view toward that, right? Like, I think he brought me in because, you know, of his views of teamwork and, and partnership and things that we both share, right? And one of the reasons I wanted to come back and I just, I found that perfect kind of, kind of match there, right? Where like, we really were attuned to wanting the same things um, and, and, you know, we brought different skill sets, uh, that really made this like a, an ideal and like, you know, very uh, perfect partnership. I, I know the word it gets used a lot, but like, I think it really has felt that way. Um, you know, for sure. Yeah. That's and awesome. and uh, I don't know if I, I'm sorry to, to talk or focus so much on this, but uh, I've done a couple, a couple of interviews, but I, something I really talk about is my like youth and, and like my kid years. Um, so like, this is a perfect opportunity because both of you mentioned, your parents' lack of willingness to accept cannabis and kind of refusal to even acknowledge that it has a potential place in, in someone's life. 
and and I mean I resonate with that a hundred percent. My parents were a hundred percent like you know your typical immigrant parents from from Mexico. So they hated cannabis. They hated the idea of me even smoking. And like I did everything that I could to to hide it from them. They caught me a couple times, and and each time uh, they hated me for it. But uh, like it's it even like it's to the point where when I first started this whole cannabis idea and starting a, like a business with it. Um, my mom like wasn't even acknowledging that this was even a possibility. She was kind of just playing it off as a pipe dream. Yeah. And then when I when I quit my job to to focus on this full time, she went as far as lecturing me to tell me like I need to get my shit together and, and figure out what I'm doing with my life. Oh. And it's like, gee, mom, thanks, uh, thanks for you know like your your support. But yeah, uh, like yeah, to, to Jackson's point, um, I, I've had the vision for for a lot of this. For a long time and, and it really comes down to to having that trust in yourself and, and trust in, in what you're building to really uh, keep pushing forward uh, and, and, and not give up. Yes, for sure. Like, I mean, if you're given this vision, it's for a reason. And and this industry is going to explode even more than it already is. And I feel like if you can't see that, like it's right there in front of you. Like we can see like how many dispensaries are now popping up all over the place. And people are more likely to like try CBD or like, you know, experiment. But I think the, you know, population is becoming more accepting slowly, slowly we're educating and, you know, getting the word out there. But one thing yeah, though, so- just to keep in mind, I, I obviously I'm a huge proponent to say that the industry is going to explode and whatnot. I mean, I, I my business kind of relies on that. idea, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I, I do want to, you know, throw the, like, you know, the elephant in the room that at, at the same time, a lot of this growth has to be strategic, especially mm-hmm. on the business side of things, because if it's not strategic, there's going to be a, a lot of blood um, mm-hmm. coming out in the next couple of years. And in Massachusetts, it, it's going to be coming and it's already happening in California and Colorado, where uh, I mean, I just yesterday I was reading an article that in Sacramento, California, about 52 delivery operators uh, had to shut down because like there just wasn't enough money for them to to make a living there and one of those mm-hmm. companies is owned by, by jay-z so or, or like his company the parent company so you know mm. uh, although there is a lot of promise in this industry uh, for anyone listening that is listening because you want to get in here just be smart about what you're doing and make sure you have a vision don't just chase the money make sure you're chasing the the vision with the strategy yes very wise words <laughs> that's the most important part so what do you guys think is the best way to learn how to run a cannabis business well so you know i don't know if there's like the best way and the the reality is like how ruben because like right now right like a lot of this is new and a lot of the people doing it are are pioneering kind of in this new space and 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 i say pioneering because Unfortunately, like, you know, we've legalized it, but at the same time, we're treating cannabis like radioactive, um, you know, and, and all the regulations and everything associated with it are stuff that you're not finding in like the alcohol market delivery and things like that. So um, so there, there isn't a guide. Right. And I think that that's that's what Ruben and I have kind of um, been wrestling with and really figuring out how to do things, because there is no one to turn to generally. Usually the other other, other operators in the, in the industry are actually really friendly and really helpful. 
right? And other other people uh, in the industry have been really helpful. So you can get, you know, you can get kind of, you know, check yourself with them and things like that. But the reality is like, we're all kind of shooting from the hip and just seeing what works. Um, you know, particularly me, you know, I had run the bar in the past. Um, so, so I think, you know, aside from the, the regulatory and stuff that really just we've been kind of figuring out as we go along and, and with, with success and we failed in some other places, I mean, with, with anything else, um, I, I, you, the thing I've brought is kind of this, this, this relationship that has to exist between, you know, people that work for you and work with you, um, you know, and everybody within the company, right? And I think I've developed that one through, you know, all these jobs I've had. Um, and also running, running, uh, you know, a bar. I think there's some parallels there with the regulation and things like that. But uh, the reality is, this is pretty unique. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you have anything to add to that, room, but like, you know, I think again, we're we're figuring these things out as we go along. Um, yeah, so, was, and there's still was, a lot to figure out. Yeah, I was trying to think through what you're saying and try to see if there was a better way to frame that. But no, like, really, the the best thing is like, especially in the in a new market like Massachusetts and especially specifically delivery, uh, you kind of just have to go dive writing and, and try to figure it out as you go. Uh, luckily, a lot of the initial parts, like the licensing requirements and whatnot, that's pretty much spelled out for you. If, if you're willing to do some reading and, and some of it, you might have to Google some definitions here and there. But for the most part, every single city, county and state um, spells out what they allow and how they allow it. So that gives you a pretty good framework of what it is that you need to figure out. Yeah. Um, and that's really how uh, like we've figured it out. And uh, I mean, I have to give credit to to like uh, my mentor, I would call him, Evan Plumaridis. He's really the one that um, showed me, first of all, that this is a thing that all it takes is a little bit of reading and, and figuring out to, to implement. But uh, yeah, he... Uh, yeah, that, that, that's really all it takes. Just read and figure it out. Uh, and, and you're going <laughs> to fail a lot, but uh, it's worth or, not trying. <laughs> or or a lot of money, right? Like, yeah. Because if you, if you have a lot of money, you can pay somebody to just figure it out for you. And I think that that's one of the unique things about Delivered and, and Ruben and I have, we've been able to do this. Um, it's in fact that we've done it all. Like we, we've read the regulations. We've submitted every application. Um, every every permit has been submitted and done worked on by us. Um, so like, cause we haven't had, we don't have the resources, um, that, you know, maybe other people have come into the industry with, and, and that's, you know, because of some historical kind of, you know, things we can talk about, but the, the reality is that like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, you know, it's a lot of reading, you know, and, and anybody can kind of do it. You just, if you put your head down and, 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 you know, and just commit yourself to it, you can get it done, but it, you know, it can be a lot, or again, you can just pay for it too. And to Jackson's point <laughs> earlier, you got a network put yourself out mm -hmm. there because if you reach out to people like us, we're willing to give you the playbook that we've developed. All you have to do is come and ask. <laughs> we're just not, <laughs> yeah. not going to put it on LinkedIn or whatever, but if you come knocking, uh, I, I will literally give you our business plan or, or SOPs, whatever it is that, that could help you. Uh, we're all about, um, promoting uh, competition as opposed to, you know, limiting it. So yeah, there, there's people out there that want to see other people succeed and we're definitely part of those people. That's competition awesome. And collaboration. Yeah. And yeah. Collaboration. Yeah. yeah. There's like barely any information online on how to run any of, any of these cannabis businesses, even CBD businesses. Like they don't want people to know, like you yeah. got to have those connections and just figure it out yourself. So that's amazing that you guys were able to do all of that. I bet it was a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. 
So why did you decide on a cannabis delivery service? Yeah, so um, this one was a bit of a strategic business decision to, to my point and Jackson's point earlier about you know, really being aware that yes, the market is going to explode and is exploding, but you want to be positioned in a place where you can capture that explosion as opposed to being on the back end of it. So when Jackson and I first connected, like what, two, three years ago at this point, uh, I was actually working on a cultivation farm. I had 55 Mm -hmm. acres tied down in Western Mass. And then my my, my, uh, uh, my mentor, um, like it was guiding me on on the whole... uh, application process, how to actually go about cultivating and whatnot. So we were doing pretty well. We we got pretty far along and we uh, got to the stage of our provisional license was about to be issued. But this was right when COVID was coming around. Um, the, the economy was shutting down um, and, and there was starting to, I was starting to see rumbles of the fact that the market in Massachusetts, especially the cultivation market is already at saturation. We may not see it actively, but the amount of canopy space that's already been licensed is well beyond what is needed to meet demand or meet the demand of Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. even if we exaggerate the numbers of consumers and whatnot. So when when I was seeing all of this, um, and, and this was right at the time that I had to pull the trigger on the lease or like the option to purchase my farm. Um, and as much as I wanted to own that 55 acre farm, it was wicked fucking cool. Like <laughs> one of the best feelings in the world. Um, it, it just didn't make sense to move forward with that, um, specifically because Massachusetts at the time was coming out with the delivery license. So uh, we ended up making it a pivot and, and focusing on the delivery market and focusing more on building that customer relationship relationship base as opposed to only focusing on the product. We figure focus on the customer first. And then if we're in a position where we can start vertically integrating, that's what we can do. But first we want to, you know, build that strong uh, customer base. Yeah. And then just kind of to, to add to that, um, you know, kind of going with your, your last question, what we learned, um, I think there's a perfect one, right? Like you have to, in this industry, kind of really fast evolving industry, you have to be willing and able to pivot and pivot quickly, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that's one of the things that as a, as a group and, and given, you know, our connection, we're going to get on the phone. Like, I mean, we'll talk five, six, seven times a day, sometimes like 10 p.m. at night. Um, and, and it's just the ability to make those decisions and like, you know, rationally think about them and then, you know, quickly move, right? Like Ruben saw the headwinds coming um, and he was able to like, you know, like figure out a better way forward. And I think one of the other things that Ruben didn't mention um, that I think is important to, to the decision is the, the three-year exclusivity period that essentially Massachusetts in trying to create a more equitable, you know, cannabis industry, they created the social equity program that we've been discussing. Um, and essentially they're giving a three-year exclusivity from the, the time the first delivery operator becomes live, um, you know, to, you know, people that are social equity applicants. So essentially, you know, we saw an opportunity to get into the industry and not necessarily limited competition because we don't necessarily mind the competition. And like we mentioned earlier, you know, we are willing to collaborate with, with anybody that wants to get into this industry. Um, but it, it does limit kind of those MSOs, those guys with a lot of money um, mm-hmm. that are just, you know, while the you know people of color um, have been kind of 
uh, at the they 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 bear the brunt of kind of the enforcement and the, the illegality of cannabis. Um, when you look at the industry and composition of ownership, it tends to not look anything like you know the people that have essentially bear the brunt of, of of all this of all these rules and things like that. So um, you know, so I think keeping the MSOs out of the industry for a while is is was, is a is a great opportunity for us. Um, and I think that also made this an attractive uh, option, right? Because there's going to be limited licenses. Um, in the the place that that Ruben discussed earlier, Sacramento, they had 58 delivery licenses just in Sacramento, right? Wow. So so right now, I think there's there's three licenses that are operational. We should be operational by the end of the year, uh, making us the fourth uh, in the state. So th there's a huge opportunity there, um, especially when you compare it to a potentially you know saturated um, you know market in the the growing space in the, in the growth space. So. Yeah, that's cool. Do you know how many um, licenses they're offering in Massachusetts for delivery? Or if there's still any on the table? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's no cap. There's yeah. no cap. And in fact, there's mm. not too many that are being fought after right now because of the whole exclusivity thing. At last number I checked was about two months ago, and there was maybe 13, 14 provisional license issued, and then another 15, 20-ish in the pipeline. So wow. although that's, a, you know, a big number like that means that in total we're probably looking at 50 ish so far that that are going to be coming on I mean in theory coming online there's a you know the potential of, that a lot of these guys don't even have money don't have the funding to actually go anywhere um, so they still have that fight to, to fight and then the whole building out and implementing the system it, so we'll see how many of those 50 ish licenses actually come to market um, but there's no actual cap on the state side of things as to how many licenses can be issued yeah, the, the, I think the one of the the big the big limiting factors too is unfortunately um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the, the 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 licensing process, but a lot of municipalities limited their retail licenses to a percentage of how many liquor licenses were within that municipality. So essentially, like um, a place like I don't know, like Clinton, if they had like ten bars, it would be like twenty percent of how many bars they had, so they would have two retail licenses. And the way to define uh, uh, the you know the retail licenses, a lot of times captured delivery as well. So essentially, delivery you can't start a delivery company in those municipalities because of the rules. So I think that's also a a kind of natural limit to how many there are going to be. So municipalities not going to have ten of them within their borders um, because then that limits you know how much money they're going to make per mm -hmm. each individual company. So. I think that there, there, there is some natural limit that's kind of been built in because of the barriers of entry, mm -hmm. um, but there, there is no like per se limit. Um, but I do think that kind of, again, those barriers of entry high, you know, like it's really expensive, a ton of just paperwork and waiting. I think unfortunately are gonna, are gonna cut down that number. Um, so I, I don't necessarily expect there to be like 50, um, maybe like closer to 20 in like three years, um, but, but they're, they're coming, uh, they're coming. Wow. So how long has this process been from like when you got the license to like when you're going to, you know, start operating? <laughs> I mean, we got our, <laughs> our provisional license for Holyoke back in January, January 20th of this year. Um, and we're still not operating. And in theory, we're still at least four five, four ish months from, from having that location go online. Um, I don't know if this is probably not the most appropriate question to ask right now, but uh, when do you think this is going to be released, this this episode? Oh, on probably next Saturday, 
next Saturday. Yeah. Okay, so that's probably yeah. So yeah, as of right now, we're we're still on track to get Holyoke up and running um, within the next. I mean, yeah, hopefully by the end of the year, if all goes well. Um, but we are uh, exploring a potential pivot for the company, but uh, we can talk about that when we when you have us on again. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So th this is a question I'm very curious about. How did you raise over 350K for your startup? Like, who did you talk to? What do you do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that this is, this is, this has been kind of a challenging part, right? Because you need a ton of money. And sometimes the money, uh, one, you have the build outs, but then you also need these like very detailed plans have to be drawn by architects. Uh, that's a lot of money. You need, you know, you need to secure a location before you can even apply for your license. And sometimes that's a few months of holding costs. You mm -hmm. need security, you know, personnel that also like their, you know, their, their plans and stuff like that cost a lot of money. So you need money. And, you know, I think that one of the, the big issues keeping, you know, minorities uh, out of the industry is this lack of kind of generational wealth, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like money that we family members and things like that, that we can like reach out to be like, hey, like, do you believe in us? Let's get this done. So Ruben and I didn't come with those connections. Um, but what we did have is a lot of people that have kind of just, we've worked with over the years and have seen our ability to get things done and, and trust us. So for example, like we got a pretty sizable investment from Ruben's uh, landlord right this is somebody who Ruben just knows who Ruben is as a person and she knows he's an extremely hardworking person um we got a sizable investment from an old like the 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 individual that I had purchased the bar from in Worcester um mm -hmm. you know years later 10 years later he's like you know like yeah you made this successful business you know and then he invested in us as well um my my girlfriend's parents like believed in in, in the mission so they they invested in us so it really came down to unfortunately we couldn't draw on we can't draw on banking you know or vc funding and things like that because uh for some reason the vc funding has dried up in the cannabis space and there's some reasons for that I mean, and then bank for some reason but yeah sorry. <laughs> yeah 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 a, yeah i mean not to dwell on the negatives but and then also the the you know banking because of the federal um illegality of cannabis we can't rely on that as uh, either. So it's like a really, it's a tough catch point too. Like you need money to get in this industry. And if you're trying to get in this industry to make money, uh, they, they kind of don't connect very well. So we've just gotten lucky that, you know, we've been able to, to really push forward in a lot of different things we've done in the past um, and just, you know, build this kind of, this relationship with people around us um, where they really have trusted us and, and have, you know, put their, their money behind us. Uh, you know, I don't know if Ruben, you have anything to add to yeah, that. Yeah, it's but. really funny because like this was Jackson's perspective on on coming from from the team, right? But like my individual perspective is so different because for <laughs> me, um, and I mentioned this earlier, Jack, but for me, it's like you would think that or well, going into this, I had the mindset that it was going to be the people closest to me that were going that was going to be the easiest to to approach and raise the money from. But it ended up being that, you know, my friends, my family, those people, they like no one really put their, their money where their mouth was. Like they mm -hmm. would always say they're here for me, like come to me when you need help, blah, blah, blah. Well, I came to them when I needed help, but no one really spoke up. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it ended up being like the weakest link in all of my connections that really led to led somewhere. So, I mean, Jackson at the time was some like a complete stranger three years ago I had never met this guy never heard of him never even thought he was going to be in my life but then I 
happened to shake his hand at this uh, mentoring event and um and, and he invites me to his house and he's like why don't we like continue talking about your your ideas and and have some drinks or whatever um so you know i went to his house and i didn't hear from him for a couple of months after that but next thing i know he's knocking on my door and he's like hey man i'm ready to come in i have some money and let's figure this out um and and so like he came on board then my landlord like yeah like jack said i was just moving into my new apartment i i just uh this i hadn't even met the lady like she just happened to stop oh, right. to, to like because she had just bought the place, but she never actually saw the house before she purchased it. Her son did. So like she was stopping by to, to see the house and whatnot. So I was a kind of touring the place with her. And I just dropped the that, that I'm working on the cannabis business. And she's like, oh, my God, that's amazing. I'd love to hear more. A couple of conversations later, she ends up investing another sizable chunk. So it's really wow. like for me, no one that I expected or wanted to invest is actually here, but mm-hmm. people that I had no idea were going to have any real impact in my life are the ones that are, that I'm talking to the most and had the biggest impact in my life Yeah, and in this process too. Yeah. That's really crazy. It's, I don't know why, but it's like a, I feel like everyone goes through this, like the people closest to you, <laughs> they care less. <laughs> that's so crazy. Like yeah. I just, I mean, like I have had kind of a similar experience, right? Like I, I had a bunch of like lawyer friends who, you know, had a ton of money. And I thought this would be really simple. Like, you know, I just have to go present this idea, present, you know, the team and this, this will take care of itself. And, and like, I didn't get as much money as I thought we would from that group of like my close friends. So mm-hmm. it's funny. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm re re like thinking through the, the, that, that answer there. But I mean, I still do think that it was people that believed, believed in us. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't particularly kind of like you know, our, our, I guess our closest friends, but that, that may be just like, I might have to think about that one a little more. Um, <laughs> and, and and to anyone out there, any friend and family out there listening, you know, no hard feelings, like, <laughs> like all love out there. I understand you have your own shit going on. We all have our own shit and we yeah. all have our own excuses. So whatever it is that prevented you from, from being here with us, kudos to you for, for doing that and for believing in whatever you're doing. I'm just glad that I believed in myself and Jack believed in me and my landlord believed in me. And I'm, I'm so fucking grateful for these people that, you know, did believe in the vision because I mean, it we're, we're, we're talking right now, like it's all butterflies and, and happiness and fun, but I mean, fucking Jackson and I went, I mean, prior to Jackson joining the team, I went a good year just door knocking, calling, emailing, fucking hitting everyone up that I could in the industry and the network. I mean, in the investment space and in whatever space, meeting with people in creepy fucking uh, rooms under under shops that were wicked sketchy, like just meeting with so many random potential investors who and, and like me trying to get all dressed up, trying to like not go high, even though I'm always high, like trying to like, <laughs> you know, just like, like I my gotta put mood. myself together. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> it's like uh, trying trying to picture these people. It was so fucking nerve wracking and, and and like not a horrible experience, but pretty darn close to one. <laughs> and, but but at the same time, I'm very grateful we went through it. It was a lot of uh, learning that that went on throughout all that experience, and and a lot of uh, growth that that we we went through. So I'm grateful that that it all happened. I'm grateful that that we did raise the money. I mean. I know a lot of other delivery companies out there in Massachusetts specifically struggling to raise a fraction of what we were able to to put together. So I am really, really fucking proud of that. Awesome. Would you say that raising the money for it was the hardest part or was there something else that was way worse? Um, 
I don't, well, so I, I mean, I don't know because I feel that like once, once we connected, like we, we would just bounce ideas of each other. Like, and typically it's like when we needed money, we just sit down and, and we have kind of made, that has been a really tough part. Um, you know, it might, it might, it might've been the toughest part. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure, but we've just have always figured out a way to like pull it out. Like it just, yeah. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure because yeah, it's, like, it's worked out, but at the same time, it hasn't been easy. Yeah. Um, that, that's a really, yeah. Good, good perspective, Jackson, because for me, it's um like, we've gone through quite a few speed bumps as some definitely bigger than others, but at the end of the day, like for me, they're just speed bumps and, and right. that's all it is. And uh, we were able to overcome every single difficulty we faced and and now like you know we're stronger than ever and and we're in the best position we've ever been so i i honestly can't tell you what the biggest difficulty was there's a shit ton of them anyone that, that wants yeah. to go down the space and, and that has gone down the space will tell you like there's road bumps and and obstacles and hoops to jump through at every fucking stage of the every, every turn you can go through but mm -hmm. if you can go through them it's well worth it <laughs> yeah I definitely think like being in the cannabis industry, you got to be ready to adjust, like, get hit all those speed bumps. Like, yeah, you full know, speed, like, just full, full speed, speed yeah. and, and just be ready to catch yourself after, you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh Absolutely. my God. The amount yeah. of no's that we've heard, the amount of just doors being shut on us and, and people telling us like, yeah, that's really cool. But then never hearing back from them again, or, or just like flat out saying, we're not interested in you. Like you don't have enough experience. It's this is going nowhere, blah, blah. Blah, blah like it was definitely disheartening but it was uh like you said we were just ready to, to fucking smash right through that and that's what we did and and now we're here yeah <laughs> that's amazing so Ruben what did you learn on the soccer field as a referee that's helped you in life <laughs> I I fucking love this question <laughs> thank you for, for um thinking of my soccer world because that is like I I love being an advocate for, for cannabis, but also for refereeing. And I encourage anyone and everyone to get out there and whatever sport it is that you enjoy, give it a try to become a referee because there is so fucking much you can learn from those experiences. And a lot of it for me, I mean, my biggest takeaway, I guess, is my ability to stay cool, calm, and collected when shit is hitting the fan and everyone else is freaking the fuck out. <laughs> um, and, you know, like this comes from, in a soccer game, you're making, a typical referee makes over 500 decisions in a 90-minute span where they're usually like, I mean, some of them are low-stake decisions and, and some of them don't mean anything, but a lot of them either will can blow up in your face right there and then or if you don't deal with it the right way it's going to blow up in your face later on mm. and these are things that you have to keep in mind as you're maneuvering through the game and making these decisions so for me like I'm used to having uh you know something go wrong and and next thing I know I have 10 players in front of me crowding me yelling me in my face like literally some of these men are, are fucking scary like I'm not going <laughs> to some of these men look like pit bulls, like literally unbelievably jacked, short, and just an anger in their face that like, it's just unbelievable. And like, I have to keep my composure and like, I have to stick with my guts and say like, you know what, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I see why you're mad but you're actually wrong. So we're, we're actually doing this. <laughs> so it's yeah. Like, if if like I could. That, if, and yeah, it, it's fun to, to 
figure out how to deal with personalities mm -hmm. and, and situations to, to bridge the gap between where you are to where you need to be to get mm -hmm. to the good outcome you're looking for. So like yeah. that skill is definitely my, my biggest one. Yeah, Jack? Yeah, and no, I was just going to say that like, you know, you know, I don't, I don't know that you, you gave, gave kind of the experience enough credit. Like I think um, kind of what you're talking about, like there's, there's this, this tendency, I think uh, that I've seen in the past when th something difficult comes up or, you know, like pushing it to the side, like, oh, we'll figure it out tomorrow. And I, I, I really feel that Ruben, and I think it definitely comes from that, that, that refereeing where small issues that you ignore can, can snowball into larger issues. Ruben's always like, we get this done now. Like, and it's, it's about, let's get, you know, let's get on a call. Let's figure this out. And it's, it's even the smallest things addressing those when they come up. And another thing I think Ruben has brought is this idea um, of being cool and collected um, while under pressure. I mean, you know, I, admittedly, like I've, I've learned so much about this because typically when things come up for me, um, you know, I, I, I go into kind of, and I'm, you know, working on this, but it's like an extreme fight or flight. Like we need to get this done now. And like my, my response compared to like Ruben, when things would come up, it's just like night and day, you know, and like, and it, and I think, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm learning from that because I realized that at the end of the day, like freaking out doesn't solve the issue. Right. Exactly. And, it, and it doesn't actually particularly get you to a solution faster. Right. Whereas if you, and I think it, it definitely comes from just that, that constant kind of, I don't know how you do 500 decisions and however long I would have a stroke, like my brain just <laughs> fry itself. Um, but I think it comes from that. Like it comes from constantly be bombarded with decision-making and then just realizing like it's, we have to make a decision and like anything above that mentality that like, this is something we have to figure out is not helping the situation. So it, it's, it's definitely something that I've also learned from what Ruben brings back. Sometimes I'm just like, how are you not more freaked out about this? You know? And he's just be like, we have to just figure it out. And I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, <laughs> all right. You know, like, uh, you know, so, so I think I, you know, through osmosis, I've kind of inherited some of that you know, hopefully in trying to, yeah, trying to inherit some more of that, like kind of, you know, cool and collectedness and understanding really like how to, how to move things forward in a productive way um, that doesn't take too much of your energy, right? That has to be spent elsewhere because more crap will come up. You know? That's awesome. Yeah. I don't mean to brag. Like, like <laughs> it's definitely going to feel like one, but another thing that I think has really helped and like Jack has pointed out, have pointed this out to me in our conversations recently, um, which I don't appreciate, but I don't say a word, um, but he's been calling me or telling me that I'm the operations guy because I'm able to put my head down and figure shit out and, and get things done. But for me, like if I'm, that's not coming from an operations place. That's coming from uh, looking at the big picture, mm -hmm. analyzing what needs to get done today, what can wait until tomorrow, and making sure that those things get done one way or another, whether I do it or I delegate it or I just delete it from the to-do list. Whatever needs to happen, I make sure that I always have a pulse on the bigger picture while focusing on the literal items. Because yeah, like that literally comes down to soccer. Like I have to keep in mind that when I'm roughing a game, usually, I mean, I, I like to say I'm working my way into doing professional games and I usually do like a lot of really high level games, but a lot of my experience comes from doing your amateur Sunday, Sunday morning games where you have, you know, 22 different players. So like 11, 11 team players on each team and they all have their own personality. They have their own problems at home, their own problems at work, their own problems at, you know, with their children. So, so like 
I have to be aware of this. I have to know that everyone is bringing something completely different to the table while at the same time, they're bringing that for their team. So like each team has a greater goal and I have to be able, I have to find a way to balance all of these different things through doing something as simple as, you know, making a, like giving the team a foul call or, mm -hmm. you know, giving a throwing call that I know is wrong, but I know like giving that bone to this team is going to, just calm the, the like the key player just enough to keep him in my pocket. So it's like being aware of how little decisions can impact the bigger picture is it, definitely a big takeaway. And and you know one really quick story. Sorry, like one of my favorite stories to tell when it comes to soccer and and being cool, calm, and collected is one Friday night I was doing a game down in Dorchester. So it's a Friday night game. We're under the lights. We're literally in the projects. There's, there's a hill behind us that leads to the projects. So the, the hill is full of people from the projects that come watch the game and whatnot. It's probably the best amateur soccer in the state, but it's a, like a Cape Covertian league. So like very fucking physical and competitive oh. and a lot of outside emotions are in these games we were doing one game where we're probably like 70 minutes into the game one team is losing and they're so mad and uh he he like there's one player pretend he got elbowed in the face or maybe he really did get elbowed in the face i don't know but like um he, he does that he starts throwing a huge fit we all tell him to shut up and like keep playing so the ball gets kicked into play as the ball's getting kicked into play, this fucker is running off the field to grab a fucking knife to come back into the field to stab the person no. who he claims elbowed him in the face. Oh. <laughs> Yo. So, that took a turn. Yeah. <laughs> did he, did he get him? Throughout all this chaos, <laughs> his teammates decided to tackle him. They, like, pinned him to the floor, like, kept the knife away from him, and, like, two players stayed on top of him while the cops arrived. Meanwhile, the rest of us just went back to the game and we finished it. <laughs> That's the, the type of mentality that I need to have when it comes to my soccer world. Otherwise, I get eaten alive by these people. No, yeah. Oh, my. I never even thought of that, like, how being a referee could be such an amazing learning experience for eventually being a CEO. Like, the amount of decisions you have to make, you're literally, like, the person making everything a equilibrium you know what i mean you yeah. have to make it all run smoothly make really fast decisions and make sure no one's butthurt about it like that's such a wow that's such a crazy experience you're essentially the composer is, is yes, what I look at yes. It as. like we're composing for a fucking live audience where we have i mean some of these college games like you go to a yukon they, mm -hmm. they literally pack the stadium with probably five ten thousand students who are just fucking like the ground shakes from how loud that place is. And it's like, wow. if you as the referee are not mentally there and you get distracted by all this outside bullshit, like you're going to mm -hmm. fuck up the game. Right. And the same thing happens when you're running the business, like you said. Yes. If you let the wrong noise distract you, you're going to not be focused on the right shit and, and fuck something up. Mm -hmm. So that's that a very good analogy. Yeah. Wow, this is awesome. I mean, these qualities are exactly, you know, what makes you know someone successful like being able to just get the work done like right then and there and not delay it like that's awesome that you know you guys have that teamwork and are able to influence each other that way <laughs> so what advice would you give someone who wants to have a cannabis delivery service or any other type of cannabis business yeah i mean i think yeah so so let me, let me get on the soapbox maybe a little bit so i think that like unfortunately like the rhetoric 
uh, behind cannabis legalization and the actions of like state regulators, like they, they seem at odds. Um, like on, on the one hand, um, they tout the social equity program as like a, a panacea uh, to the harm caused by the war on drugs on, on like black and brown communities. Um, but then they create a system, with so many rules and regulations, like a chunk of these regulations um, are kind of divorced from, from any public policy kind of concerns, right? Like we have to have two drivers in the car at once yeah, when see. that doesn't seem to, like there's nothing backing up like that being something that like will help, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and those things like they price out those same communities uh, that they're trying to get into the industry, right? Because of those those structural kind of things that we discussed that, you know, like the, the, the money's not there, you know, the generational wealth's not there, so you can't go to families, um, and things like that. So, you know, I think there's also the, the various governmental like, stakeholders, like municipal government, you know, the municipalities, the CCC um, that are involved um, that you have to like consult in the process. And I think that, you know, because sometimes there's little control over those, it leaves the door open for like abuse and exploitation. Like, mm -hmm. you know, some municipalities, you know, pay, you know, charge, you know, pay to play and, and some would just charge really high you know, uh, like, like fees for things that like they, they, they shouldn't, right. Or like they don't cost that much. Um, so I think there's just so many things like working against you, uh, in this industry that you need the right team. I think that's, that, that's really kind of where this comes. It's, it's, it's complicated. Be ready to, to kind of really burn some brain cells, figuring some of the stuff out. But if you have the right team, the right set of, you know, like personalities and things like that, um, you know, that's going to take you a long way because I think sometimes I get down on some of this stuff, like crap, like we're here still, or like this, now we have to do this. And then Ruben come in and be like, it's nothing. We, we got this figured out. And maybe sometimes Ruben's like, man, again, and I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, we went through this again. And so like, you know, that's one aspect of it, right? People that can mm -hmm. like push each other up. But then there's also like, you know, Ruben has this phenomenal uh, online presence that that has helped us kind of generate some attention, attract some new talent, like like uh, Gabriel, who's our you know going to be our CEO, joined us recently, joined with a pretty good investment in the company, um, and also is is you know hopefully our going to be our operations guy, and is really doing an amazing job of working through the build outs and stuff like that, right? So um, and then I could come in with some of the paperwork and and things like that. So like we have been able to kind of balance ourselves, play you know play off each other's strengths. And also keep each other accountable and engaged, right? So you really just need that team. I think that you know if you're coming in, in at this alone, it, it's tough. It's tough to just internalize all this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I would say that that's my my big. You know, there, there's just so many obstacles that don't need to be in place. Um, that it really just helps to be able to put that on somebody else's shoulder for a little bit. You know, and a team, the right team, I think can make the big the, the biggest difference in this. Yeah, definitely. For me, it's uh, whether you're starting a cannabis business, a restaurant, a housing development, whatever the fuck you're working on. Um, my biggest piece of advice is, is yeah, to, to resonate off of that is, is a team. You know, like what, what my favorite saying right now, or one of them is that a, gr a whole grape is always going to be a hell of a lot smaller than half of a watermelon. So, yeah, you might have to give up a piece of the pie in, in order to get to the finish line and you may not be the only decision maker. But so what? Let your fucking ego go and focus on the bigger picture, which is, I mean, most people ultimately want some type, want some sort of income. Right. So, like, mm -hmm. focus on that bigger picture and 
find the people that complement your your skills. We all have weaknesses and you have to be aware of that and, and find people that complement those weaknesses. That way you can kind of bounce off each other and, and go to the go to the fucking moon. Yeah. yeah, another another just kind of point on that that you just mentioned, Ruben. Um, you're not going to be making money for a really long time doing this, right? So, like, you know, and and again, not having kind of those, you know, not family that you can kind of you know rely on things like that. You really need a team because not you know you're not going to be able to do it all on your own, right? Um, especially if you also have to feed yourself and have another job. Like Ruben referees, Ruben uh, publishes books, Ruben you know has a shipping company. Um, I have a law firm that I do some work on the side to like pay the bills. Um, you know, so like you need to, you know, you're not going to be able to put it all into this. Uh, so you, I mean, we, we'd love to, but you won't be able to, cause it's such a long process. So having that team that you can, you know, rely on to do certain parts, uh, and spread it around so that you can all then, you know, survive like on your day-to-day -day life. Um, you know, all, all of it, part of it. So I think really like coming in with that, you know, it doesn't have to be the right team. You can build it, but you have to be you have to have a team in place. The mindset sure. of, a, of willing to have a team is what. Yeah, I'm, yeah, for sure. Yeah, wow, that's great advice. So, what is your company's name? Where are you guys going to deliver? <laughs> to educate my listeners. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we're Delivered Inc. Yeah, our website is deliveredinc.co, not com, just co. Uh, yeah, big one. A lot of people get it wrong. <laughs> um, so. We're going to deliver in the greater Worcester area and the greater Springfield communities. So, you know, you're, I mean, Worcester, Clinton, uh, Hudson, Shrewsbury, Marlboro, Holyoke, Amherst, Ludlow, uh, all, and anywhere in between, really. I mean, we're, we're going to have two locations, one in Holyoke and the second one in Clinton. So we're going to be eventually hope to also reach in Boston from there, but that's going to be more phase two, phase three of, of launch. Right now we're focusing on the Worcester and, and Springfield communities. Awesome. And where can people find your website or, or any socials if you have any? <laughs> yeah. So uh, deliveredinc.co, the website, and then the Instagram is at deliveredinc.co, literally just like the website, but with at on it. And <laughs> you look that up on Facebook as well. Um, our page comes up and we're also on LinkedIn. And uh, I mean, my personal page is, is uh, also Ruben Sadie. I'm on, I'm all, uh, I'm on social, like Facebook, uh, LinkedIn and, and wherever else you can find me and, and Jack. Uh, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm a mix of Jackson Mejia, but uh, I'm, I'm lurking. If you find the word, you'll find me as well. <laughs> awesome. I mean, I will, I will list that in the description so people can find you guys. <laughs> appreciate that. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for coming on here. This was an awesome conversation. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for having us. I mean, really enjoy kind of getting the word out and, and really, you know, I think we're going to see, we're going to do a lot more of this as we prep for launch. Uh, so we really appreciate, you know, you having us on and, and letting us to kind of talk about ourselves and, and, and kind of what we're working on here. So thank you so much. Of course. I wish you guys so much success. I know it's all going to come. Y'all have amazing personalities for it. You're driven. You'll uh, get this. <laughs> it's awesome. Thank yeah, you. Thank you so much, Leah. Yeah, just to echo Jack, we really appreciate being here and we're really excited to be back on in the future. <laughs> yes, yeah. Definitely will. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. 
And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canada podcasters right here on PodConX and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together. 